Changes to voting laws in many parts of the United States are under scrutiny. We'll ask why many American businesses are now adding their voices to a divisive political issue. A changing of the guard is underway across several of the US's major television news networks as CBS News becomes the latest broadcaster to search for a new president. And with fewer than 100 days to go until the Olympic Games in Tokyo, we'll rifle through some of the official team wardrobes after the latest team uniforms were unveiled yesterday. Monocle's editors take on those subjects today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday the 15th of April and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto and with us today are our regular Thursday duo Monocle 24's Carlotta Rabello who's in London for us and Monocle's Henry Rhys Sheridan in New York City. Henry, Carlotta, great to have you both with us on a Thursday once again here on the late edition. How are you both doing in your respective corners of the world? Carlotta, let's start with you. Oh, so, Tom, finally this week we have started here in the UK to have a bit, a, a tiny bit of life back. Let's just say on Monday, um, pubs, restaurants, cafes with outdoor space were allowed to reopen, as well as a lot of the shops that had been closed until now. Only essential shops were open. So that was basically just pharmacies and supermarkets. So, you know, anything from bookshops to record stores, anything was all was back. So it has been just so nice to see a bit of life back in London, um, even though now it is a bit of a nightmare to try to book a table anywhere if you want to go and see your friends. But it's good to have that problem. I am not complaining. Uh, but I kind of forgot, you know what, I kind of forgot um, just that, you know, the pavements are not that wide all the time. We had one year where there was no, nothing was open and, you know, all the tables and chairs were inside these businesses that were sadly shut. And suddenly, you know, from Sunday to Monday morning and Monday morning walking around Marylebone coming into the office, just like, wow, we usually did not have all this space and it's just so nice. Quite a bit nostalgic seeing, you know, all the tables being uh, dusted off and uh, being put outside with people eager uh, to sit in them and catch up with friends. Well, seeing the tables dusted off on the sidewalks is a bit of a distant dream here in Toronto, given that we're still uh, under a stay-at-home order. But Carlotta, just to quickly put you on the spot but before we come to Henry have you made your first post-lockdown non-essential purchase you talked about the bookshops and the record stores there have you have you indulged since the restrictions were eased on Monday well, yes and no. I did go to Don't Books here in Marleybone, right around the corner from our office. And I guess I was just so overwhelmed with having the choice and being able to browse that I ended up leaving empty-handed. Uh, so I guess, no, I have not made my non-essential purchase yet. But it was just really nice to, you know, lose track of time inside a bookshop uh, again. Uh, the next thing I'm really looking forward to is to be able to go to a gallery. But I don't know, it depends where you sit on this debate. I find it essential. My, some people might say not. But going out for a drink with some friends, I mean, that's pretty essential. And that was really nice. <laughs> well, I hope you raised a glass to both Henry and I, Carlotta, Always. as you did that. And, and Henry, how's New York City treating you this week? This week has been has been quite good. I'm not sure if I discussed my aborted attempt to get vaccinated last week, but I did actually manage to do it to get the first shot anyway this week. I went to uh, City Field in Queens, which is the home of the Mets baseball team, and uh, got the first shot of the Pfizer vaccine. So I'm feeling 
optimistic and uh, biologically resilient too. I'm glad to hear it, Henry. Henry Reese Sheridan and Carlotta Ribello, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, we begin in the United States, where the battle to reform voting in several Republican-led states in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election has raised a growing sense of alarm among many Democrats and voting rights activists that traditionally underrepresented voter groups in US elections are about to find it harder to cast their ballots. Well, increasingly, major businesses in the US are adding their voices to the debate around the controversial reforms. And on today's edition of The globalist Lewis Lukens, a former US diplomat and now a senior advisor at the Signum Global Consultancy in the UK, explained why. Republican governors and legislatures in 43 of our 50 states are trying to pass laws to make it, um, well, essentially to make it more difficult to vote. They, They would frame it a little bit differently and say that they're trying to make the upcoming elections more secure. And this is all built on the this sort of fantasy that that the election was stolen from Donald Trump that the Republican Party has bought into. So they're trying to make it harder to vote in many states around the country. And, you know, Democrats obviously are pushing back on that, as are many citizens. And now these big corporations have gotten involved. The business community is not completely aligned on this. But what I think they're reacting to is their their consumers, the people who buy their products and who put money in their pockets, they want greater access for voting. And social media has enabled these campaigns where people can very quickly target a company and say, you need to boycott this event or you need to do this. And the companies have to be reactive to what their consumers are are demanding. Lewis Lukens there speaking to us on The Globalist a little earlier today. Henry, why in your mind do many of these big companies, these large private entities in many cases in the US now feel that they have to to add their voices to this debate? I think that kind of on a little bit more of a, of, a, of a zoomed out perspective. I think over the last decade or so, there's been a really significant increase in uh, the extent to which consumers are able to hold large corporations accountable. Uh, and that's basically through social media has been commensurate with the growth of social media. Um, And I think that that explains why a general culture has developed of corporations feeling that they need to make the right noises on any given issue to avoid a very public backlash uh, by ordinary internet users uh, and and activists against them. Um, I think a real watershed moment for this uh, was the Black Lives Matter protests last year, where you saw, to my mind anyway, a kind of unprecedented uh, um, uh, reaction uh, on the part of large corporations to that event. Uh, it, it became uh, essentially required as a, as a, as a PR move to uh, release uh, some kind of statement in favour or supporting the, the, the movement, I think that's fair to say, on the part of uh, most companies. Now, on this issue in particular, uh, the, the, the issue of the restrictive voting laws that Republicans are looking to introduce in states across the country, when you put it like that, it sounds like it could be a relatively dry uh, technical issue that doesn't grasp 
the public's imagination. But what's been made very clear by activists is that the measures Republicans are seeking to introduce target democratic jurisdictions, which are disproportionately black and Latino. And so the opponents of this law have made it very clear, have been successful at making it clear that it's in fact a social justice issue. And that really does put the spotlight on it. Um, so this is a cynical explanation of, or rather an explanation of what the cynical motives of these corporations might be. I have no doubt that executives and people within these companies earnestly oppose these measures uh, for, for reasons of conscience. But it's also true that the optics are very important and uh, uh, there, there has developed over in recent years uh, uh, almost a uh, requirement for for uh, companies to to respond or take a public stance on issues, uh, particularly those that touch upon social justice. And Carlotta, as Henry mentioned there, the optics on either side of this debate, I guess, can be a pretty precarious game for a big business. As Lewis Lukens mentioned a little earlier, not all businesses are singing from the same song sheet here. How precarious do you think it is for businesses to stay, take a stand or to stay silent as these voting reforms uh, continue to be debated and in some cases are pushed through uh, the state legislatures? Well, it's a tricky one, isn't it? But I, I think ultimately, if you as a corporation, as a business, um, are happy to take, you know, a stance like this one, then you should also be ready to take the action to, you know, match your words with some actual meaningful, um, yeah, action or gesture. You know, uh, the corporate America has uh, obviously uh, historically had long ties, has long ties with the Republican establishment, with the GOP. Um, so there's questions here to be raised. Of all those companies that signed this, have any of them say said they would stop donating to, you know, the party or to, uh, to back particular races happening at all levels of government from local to federal? You know, that's, that's when it's going to matter more than, you know, um, this... I'm not going to call it a... I don't want to go as harsh as saying it, it is a PR stunt, but definitely, let's say, something that looks good. Um, so I think it, it is... It is, of course, good to see this and the fact that um, companies are calling for the responsibility in defending the right to vote and um, standing up against, you know, any legislation that might be discriminatory. But at the end of the day... If you are signing this sort of letter but still donating half a million to a local candidate of a party that supports this sort of legislation, um, you're not you're not really you know helping. You're part of the problem. So I'm I'm curious um, as you know midterms will approach uh, if this is still um, uh, on a story that we're talking about then uh, to see how many of the companies uh, that have been. Uh, that have signed, uh, you know, this uh, voting rights uh, plea that uh, how many of them will actually um, stop supporting candidates that in the past they would have supported. 
one next here on the late edition. Susan Zarinsky, who is appointed president of CBS News in 2019, is reportedly preparing to leave her role. A search for her replacement is reportedly underway, but her departure is just the latest in a series of changes at the top of some of the largest TV news networks in the United States. Henry, do we have a sense of why Susan Zarinsky, who became the first woman to lead CBS News's operation when she was appointed, um, has decided to move on? She's apparently told people close to her that she, part of her anyway at least, wants to return to frontline news production, which is the role that she worked in uh, for a very long time actually, for uh, three or four decades before she stepped up to the executive role um, at CBS. Uh, I think the context of her taking the lead role is important when it comes to understanding her motivations. Uh, She stepped up in the wake of uh, Leslie Moonves uh, uh, being uh, uh, got rid of uh, for for sexual harassment allegations. This was during the uh, kind of... um, uh, this is when 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 the Me Too movement had kind of uh, uh, moved from uh, Hollywood uh, into into media and was taking it by storm uh, in in 2019. Probably uh, uh, Susan Zarinsky felt a sense of duty to uh, represent, I think, women in an executive capacity at this critical point, um, and I think she, she she you know that's completely understandable, uh, but. Yeah, from the reports I've read, she never had any great love for or desire to remain in the role. Uh, and, and I don't think that she can be criticised at all for wanting to step aside now, particularly given the context of uh, many of these legacy news networks suffering pretty badly in the uh, in the wake of... Uh, Frankly, Trump being out of office, it has not been good for ratings. He was very good for ratings and his departure has has not been so good. Uh, Joe Biden isn't quite as watchable, Uh, although, uh, you know, he has very, uh, very many other uh, um, good qualities. Uh, So I'm sure that uh, Zarinsky is going to look forward to uh, retiring from from this role and, and possibly her successor. Well, no, probably her successor is going to have a a bit of a tougher time. And Carlotta, given that there have been many other changes at other newsrooms in the US, James Goldston, ABC News, announced he was moving on in January and Jeff Zucker of CNN announced in February that he intends to step down. Um, As Henry said, the the sort of viewership of, of TV news has changed pretty quickly and pretty dramatically since Donald Trump left office in the United States. Do we have a sense of what this changing of the guard at some of the biggest newsrooms in the country might eventually mean? What changes they might potentially herald? I think they can, you know, they can be used as an opportunity not only to bring in someone with a different background or experience to help deliver change or to appoint someone um, that reflects that the network is on top of the changes, you know, happening in society. Uh, you mentioned there in your uh, question, uh, James Goldstone at ABC News. Well, just yesterday we found out who's going to replace him, uh, Kimberly Godwin, uh, who's making history. She's the incoming president of ABC News. She'll be starting in May. 
Um, and, you know, she will be the first black executive to run any of America's major broadcast network newsrooms, which is pretty astonishing to think that you had to wait to 2021 for that to happen. But yet again, reflects the discourse that has been happening in the country, um, demanding better representation and uh, with all uh, rightly so and better representation on you know senior level uh, of people from all parts of society. And this is quite incredible. And she has, you know, uh, 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 broadcast experience, uh, career that's went all the way from, you know, the local level to now being um, the executive that's running ABC News, which I think is pretty astonishing and a great story. But it is a, a change that signals exactly um, the need to, you know, reflect uh, that, you know, things are indeed um, moving. Uh, the uh, ABC, when announcing um, the... Um, the the new appointment we even said you know every past president of abc news has been um a white man so it is more than time to kind of change that um so yeah it is interesting and i i know that we're talking here mostly about broadcast networks in the us but it also made me think about uh, reuters news um which um just this week also announced that um, their new editor-in-chief uh, is going to be Alessandra Galloni, who's also the first woman ever to lead um, Reuters News, you know, a news agency that has 170 years history. Uh, that's how long it took. So personally, I am happy to see this change, happy to see, um, you know, new people um uh, with different background, different experience at the top of some of the world's biggest news organizations. And hopefully that will reflect in content and, you know, the stories that need to be told, being reported and giving a voice to um, everyone. Well, finally here on the late edition, there are fewer than 100 days to go until the opening ceremony of the Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo. And on today's edition of The Globalist, our bureau chief in Tokyo, Fiona Wilson, brought us this update on the current mood in Japan ahead of the Games. There was a Kyodo poll over the weekend and, you know, they asked people the same question, do you want the Olympics? And it's it's pretty much been running at about the same figure and they can only drum up about a quarter of the uh, population or a quarter of the people who answer these polls say they do want the Olympics and everyone else is saying, please cancel or postpone again. The Olympic torch is going around Japan at the moment. It, it, it's been in Osaka for the last couple of days where they've had a bit of a spike in infections, so no spectators allowed. So you've seen the sights of these rather lonely runners with the, with the flame running through uh, empty parks. They tried to drum up a bit of interest with uh, Hideki Matsuyama, who obviously won the Masters at the weekend. Very exciting for Japan. And, you know, there's even talk that maybe he'll light the, the cauldron when it comes to the opening of the Olympics. So they're trying to drum up some interest, but it is tough at the moment. Fiona Wilson there speaking to us on The Globalist today. Um, Henry, yesterday was quite a notable day for two of the teams that will be heading to Tokyo in a few months' time because Team USA and Team Canada unveiled the official athletes' uniforms for the closing ceremony uh, and they couldn't be more different, could they? I saw the Team USA one and I, I actually, I dig it, I'm into it. I think that it, it's kind of like a like a like a space age aristocrat look. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
I know absolutely what you're talking about. And of course, they are designed by Ralph Lauren, who has designed several previous Olympic teams. Well, just to bring you up to speed then, Henry, the Team Canada uniform has been designed by an equally storied sort of design house here in Canada, the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, But the main feature of these uniforms is a denim jacket spray painted in various kind of graffiti types of things. That's atrocious. That's unforgivable, isn't it? And it really has sparked the kind of debate here in Canada that really are on one side or the other. There's no sitting on the fence on this one. Obviously, I'm guessing playing on the idea of the Canadian tuxedo, which is a pretty nauseating idea to a lot of Canadians. And yeah, it's really raised a lot of eyebrows here. Carlotta, I'm not sure if you've seen the joys of Team Canada's closing ceremony outfit for yourself. Uh, But do we know so far what, what your home team, Team Portugal, will be sporting at the Olympics this year? Sadly, I do have I have seen Team Canada's uh, efforts, um, and let's leave it at that. I have no idea actually what Team Portugal uh, will be uh, wearing for the Olympics. I I, decide, I tried to look it up before uh, we spoke today, and I wasn't able to find it. So it seems it's still a mystery, but. Tom, no offense, I don't think it can be much worse than Canada's choice of attire, uh, but I'll make sure to keep you posted uh, when I found, find out. Wait, I also have a recommendation before we go, just for listeners to Google the uh, Tokyo uh, uh, Olympic volunteer uniforms. Because they're pretty good too. I'm not sure if this has been this idea has been nixed since, but there was an iteration of them where they had kind of like. Uh, uh, umbrella hats that were on their heads at all time to protect them from the elements, which is a development I would certainly uh, welcome becoming customary uh, in everyday life. Begging for, for them to send you one, Tom. I can hear it in your voice. I do enjoy a freebie, I can't deny, Carlotta. Well, the immaculately dressed Henry Rhys Sheridan and Carlotta Rabello, thank you both very much for being with us on the programme today. That is all we have time for for today's show. The show today was edited in London by Louis Allen. A big thanks to him, as always, too. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow but in the meantime do be sure to listen to the latest episode of the urbanist which premiered here on monocle 24 a short while ago i'm thomas lewis here in toronto thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow